1: Hello, and welcome to New Books in Public Policy. I'm Tevi Troyer, your host, and this week we're going to do something a little bit different. We're going to interview someone live and in person. No Skype intermediary for us this week. The person we're going to interview is Max Singer, the author of History of the Future, The Shape of the World to Come is Visible Today. Max is a scholar at the Hudson Institute, but not just a scholar. He's one of the founders of the Hudson Institute, along with Herman Kahn, a larger-than-life character that I'm going to ask Max about in the interview today. And we're going to talk about his book, which really describes how we can predict the ways in which the world is changing and will continue to change based on what we've seen from the countries that have made the transition from what he calls traditional societies to what he calls modern societies. And watching that transition, which he says has only happened in about 20 countries so far, will really help determine the shape of the world in the years to come. So with that introduction, we will go live to our interview here with Max Singer, who is sitting right next to me. Max Singer, welcome to New Books in Public Policy. Thank you. Nice to be here. I'd like to start the way we traditionally start our interviews here on New Books in Public Policy, which is to ask you to tell us a little bit about yourself, what's your background, your biography, and how it came to be that you were in position to write this book. I was
0: rescued from being a lawyer back in 1960 by Herman Kahn, who invited me to go work with him at RAND, and a year later when he decided to go out and open his own uh, policy research organization, he asked me to come along and be his junior partner, and together we started the Hudson Institute in the summer of 1961, 50 years ago, and I've been doing policy research ever since partly with Hudson and
1: then in Israel, and I now
0: live in Israel and uh, mostly there.
1: Can you tell us a little bit about Herman Kahn, especially think about the younger listeners out there who are listening to a podcast and may not be familiar with his work?
0: Well, you're missing something. (laughs) He was a great man, a genius, great fun. He's a person who used to give three-day lectures. That is, he would have the same audience for three days and speak in the in the morning before and after coffee, in the afternoon, before and after coffee, and sometimes in the evening. And the first time I went to one of these it was a short two day version. <laughs> and in the coffee breaks and at meals every say, Gee, that was interesting. It's too bad he didn't have more time to finish that discussion, whatever it was that we were talking about it. he uh he was lots of fun and very open-minded, and uh, uh, at Hudson Institute, he organized a uh, intellectual exchange which harnessed a lot of very different kinds of people who attack problems that nobody knew how to attack.
1: How do you think he would do in this 140-character Twitter universe that we now live in? <laughs> I think that's not his media. <laughs> <laughs> so you also mentioned the Hudson Institute. Can you also tell us a little bit about the Hudson Institute? You mentioned he was 50 years old. And full disclosure, I am a senior fellow at the Hudson Institute also, which is one of the ways I know Max, but um, Hudson's 50th anniversary. What, what does that mean and what, what's Hudson all about? Well, Hudson is
0: one of the, uh, the non-ideological or non-partisan uh, uh, call a think tank. We call it a policy research organization. Uh, and Hudson's specialty has always been uh, the kinds of problems that uh, don't fit within any specialty or any expertise that require uh, bringing together uh, different skills and points of view uh, uh, to deal with the future. That is, all problems are in the future. They're either the short-term future or the longer-term future. Uh, and uh, our basic belief is that if these are hard problems and that you need independent minds to work together to, to get uh, not answers, but uh, a better understanding still the policymaker to make decisions.
1: And that's an important point you make that you said Hudson is non-ideological and non-partisan. I think so many times think tanks today are partisan in that they have a party line that you must adhere to. Hudson differs. I would say that most of the people here are center right in orientation, but there's no overall structure at Hudson that says you must come out a certain way.
0: Uh, that's right. I mean, in fact, in uh, sixties 60s, uh, Hudson wrote a book called Can We Win in Vietnam, which was five authors, and three said yes, and two said no, or something like that. And we similarly had a debate about uh, ballistic missile defense with people on both sides. Uh, we, what Hudson, we believe in a second-order agreement. That is, uh, people can't agree about the conclusions, but they can agree about what the arguments are. And the test is if A and B disagree, A should be able to explain B's position so that B will say, yes, that is my position, and vice versa. And then you can go on and have a serious discussion of, of how we can decide what's true or what is
1: the best. Well, that would be a novel concept here in Washington today. Let's get into the book a little bit. Um, one thing that caught me or struck me in this book, and the title is The History of the Future, is it you said that in the book that history are really stories of the few, meaning when we study history, we're looking at the elites over time. Has that changed in terms of, you know, there the are more modern conceptions of history that you see in the your graduate school. Has that changed over time?
0: Uh, no, I don't think so. Uh, well, there are social histories now. Is, is fairly popular, and that, that gets more into lives. But I'm talking the long sweep of history. Uh, and basically most people throughout history after the hunter-gathering period were uh, poor farmers uh, uh, either serfs or independent farmers but essentially they had to work very hard very dull way uh, and uh, didn't have decent living conditions and and didn't have uh, lived short lives and that was true no matter how advanced the civilization was. It was true in Renaissance Italy. It was true in the great empires of China. It was true in in advanced societies in Europe. All the things that we think of as that make some civilizations great uh, were done by a few people, and the great mass of people lived the same, more or less, uh, throughout history. What's changing now is that in the modern part of the world, that uh, modernity uh, exists for everybody. The United States has average income of over $20,000. That that means that uh, whereas in the past, the average incomes were maybe $800. Uh, so that uh, the whole society partakes of education, of uh, decent living conditions, of, of the the modern modern qualities of life and they all have to be taken care taken account of as part of their society uh, in the past you could ignore the serfs they didn't make any difference they didn't have any choice they didn't know what was going on they didn't influence anything they were just there providing uh, uh, each of them small amount of resources that the upper class could take to build their uh, cathedrals and uh, and other things uh, so that that is in some ways the biggest change that's that's taking place the change from uh, a civilization of the few built on the backs of many uh, to a civilization uh, where all the people or almost all the people uh, participate in in the advanced
1: life and have to do with the politics as well, one of the things that's evident in your answer just now as well as in the book is the incredible scope or range of the book. I mean you talk about the u s and Japan as modern societies, but you're also talking about Congo and, and Yemen i mean where do you get all the information about these um, i don't want to say obscure places but, uh, but but places that aren't studied as as seriously and, and someone uh, in, in a way that you're covering so much ground if, i mean you know. The modern systems is unsurprising, but that you know the, these uh, smaller, less modern systems is, is even more impressive.
0: Well, it's only possible because I don't deal in in detail or <laughs> in any uh, uh, very precise way. What I'm saying is, <clears throat> in some ways, I mean the title means uh, that we can see the future in the history of those countries of, who have already gone from the way, from traditional societies and become modern societies in the way I define it. There are only about 20-odd uh, of, of such countries, and they only first became fully modern, that is, with uh, information economies, economies uh, uh, of ideas and rather than in, of things uh, in the last, say, 25, 40 years. Uh, so modernity is a new thing. But the process by which countries went from the way they always were to modern countries, that we see, that is the history that we have available to us in our own society, uh, and that is the history uh, that is the future for the rest of the world. Uh, They will do as we have done uh, for the same reasons
1: we did it. And that's really the heart of the book, that we can predict the history of the future because we know what the shift from a traditional society to a modern society looks like, because we've seen these 20-odd nations make that shift, and we're going to see, according to your analysis, more countries making this shift over the years ahead. We know what the shift looks like, and we can identify certain patterns that are going to take place. So uh, one of the patterns that, that I noted uh, that you mentioned in the book are, are some things that people don't really think about. Like the homicide rate, for example, you said in medieval times is a nine, um, has decreased 99% from uh, from some of these traditional societies to current mo- modern system. Uh, wh- what other surprising shifts would we expect between traditional and modern societies?
0: Well, in some ways, none of it is uh, uh, surprising to those of us who live in, in modern societies. In some ways, what is surprising is to realize how different human life was in the past from, from what we experience uh, in the past uh, violence and uh, uh, mass production and ordering people around uh, was the way things happened. Mass production is uh, even relatively re- recent but uh, 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 the whole the whole way of life and what people could expect uh, was different in more, and I want to say this, primitive times. Uh, I'm careful to say that an advanced society is advanced, meaning it comes later, comes after, uh, more primitive, not that it's better, because better involves values that I don't address. I'm talking about what is happening in history, not whether we should like it or not.
1: Yeah, and some, another thing that I noticed in the book that is really surprising the, uh, the way – advanced societies work so there's this documentary right now on hbo where uh, alexander pelosi nancy pelosi's daughter is going around the country and asking people what it means to be an american she asks people from traditional societies and i must say i like that phrase better than than third world which is used said, that's this value judgment but from traditional societies what is great about america what does america mean to you and the, the answers are really staggering some of the people say things like when you call 911, the authorities actually come to help you. And these are things that we so take for granted in, in our society. Do you think that, that kind of structure of a society where you can walk down the street and not really have to worry about uh, getting killed, although you know, perhaps not in some of the rougher neighborhoods and cities I want to identify, but for the most part you, you, feel, you feel safe and secure and you know the, the authorities are, are there and available and, and able to help you?
0: Yes, that, uh, and what I'm saying is, it's all of a piece. That uh, what happens is that people want to have live a little bit better lives. They want to work to become more productive, so they they start working in in more efficient ways, and that leads to new needs uh, for education among the people, for institutions uh, that make life more orderly, and as people uh find that this is productive uh they make more and more of it and so the society evolves uh, uh because of because of this process part of it is less violence part of it is more education part of it is the people uh moving from doing work with their muscles and their backs to move uh, work with their minds and first in uh uh, on the intellectual ways, if you will, massive kinds of work with the bookkeeping and, and other things. But uh, the end point is a situation where the way to get ahead in society is to be creative, to find a new way of doing things, doing thing, or uh, open your own store, or whatever it is, Uh, And more and more people have to have that creativity and responsibility for the society to become more efficient. And so it's a a constant pull and push for the society to evolve. You
1: have a great chart on page four of the book, for those of you looking along at home, that compares the traditional and the modern societies. Life expectancy is 30 years in a traditional society or over 78 years in a modern society. You talk about what you just mentioned, the typical work is uh, physical versus mental. Uh, you talk about whether people live in in villages or in nomadic bands versus whether they live in cities. Um, and and then some of the inter- interesting things are about choice. In a traditional society, you say very little. And in um, a modern society, you see a great deal. I mean, maybe sometimes Americans think they have too many choices. Um, knowledge, again, not much. In a, in a modern society, a great deal. So it, it really... Again, these are things that we don't think about necessarily, but but that we often take for granted. And one of the things that's necessary, I guess, to have one of these modern systems is, and it's essential to understanding the concept of the book, is what you call a war system. Now, a war system sounds like it's a militarized state, but it really isn't. Can you talk about a war system and what it means? Yeah, war system
0: is the way the world always was in the past, even until well into the last century, and still is in most of the world today. The war system: a country was safe from uh, domination or invasion only if it had either its own military force or allies who had military force. And the key, the key element of a country's influence internationally was how much military force it had. The strong countries, the military strong countries, were influential. Weak countries. Uh, uh, had to yield to to countries with more military force. Uh, that was the whole way of life of, of international foreign policy.
1: Uh,
0: it turns out that when you have modern countries, and the only region we can see in the world where there are only modern countries is Western Europe. In Western Europe, none of those countries can imagine going to war with another one of them. They can't imagine attacking or being attacked. Uh, They don't, uh, they care very much about relative power. There's a constant uh, political jockeying among the countries, but military force doesn't enter the calculations. Uh, Winston Churchill talked about how the British fleet sank. Britain, British Empire would disappear without a trace. Today, the British fleet could sink and wouldn't affect the politics of of Western Europe, or it wouldn't affect the safety or the or the influence of England. So it's we see in that that's part of the world, a critical part. It's been very warlike in the past. That the war, the fundamental nature of the relations between countries has changed, and what seems to me clear is that the reason it's changed is because of the nature of those countries have changed, and therefore when the nature of other countries change. Other parts of the world will change in the same way. The change is not to better people, to more morality, or to any way of doing without human aggression. The change has to do with the, the, the countries and the incentives, uh, and if you will, the, the experiential vocabulary of political leaders and of society.
1: Yeah, you mentioned Winston Churchill, and I've, I've come into the book where they have that quote from Winston Churchill on page 71, and I, I want to read it just because uh, with Churchill, they're, these books are always so evocative. For consider these ships, they were all that we had. On them floated the might, majesty, dominion, and power of the British Empire. All our long history built up century after century. All the means of livelihood and safety of our faithful, industrious, active population depended on them. And this is my favorite part of the quote. Open the sea co- cocks and let them sink beneath the surface, and in a few minutes the whole outlook look of the world would be changed the british empire would dissolve like a dream your reaction to hearing that quote well first of all it's it's beautiful churchillian writing
0: and second it's it seems to me to perfectly encapsulate uh, the war system uh, he didn't think he was doing making any news when he made that statement he was expressing in a vital way Uh, what all serious and experienced people knew. The military power was at the heart of international relations and a country that didn't have power was likely to be dominated and certainly couldn't maintain an international empire be lucky if it could protect itself. And we see in Western Europe that's no longer true in that it's not that they are free from conflict with other parts of the world and they're even military conflict with other parts of the world, and lots of conflict among themselves. But not military power is not part of it. It's dropped out of the vocabulary. People don't think that way. It's just as domestic policy. It's that way, too. In Russia, businessmen kill people who get in their way all the time. There are dozens, if not hundreds, of these these murders. United States, our businessmen are, are just as human, just as aggressive, uh, just as uh, nasty people, if you will. But it wouldn't occur to the head of G to uh, have somebody murdered. It's not that he would think about, you know, can I get away with it? Uh, uh, will it work? It just doesn't occur to him. Uh, if you
1: watch the movies, you think it happens all the time. Yes, but <laughs> it doesn't. Uh- One thing that the book really reminded me of was was Fukuyama's The End of History, this whole notion that we are coming to a new era, an era of modernity, democracy, as Fukuyama. Can you talk a little bit about the contrast in your ideas and and, Fukuyama's? Fukuyama Fukuyama was sort of uh, denigrated after claiming that history had had ended, which was sort of a misunderstanding of of his book. Uh, And then we had, after 9-11, there were clearly new history chapters waiting to be written. So how does your argument contrast from Fukuyama? Uh,
0: well, we come in many ways to similar conclusions. I'm a great admirer of his. I think he's a great thinker and and a tremendous scholar. Uh, he didn't say that history had ended. He said it was going to end, and that the liberal democracy was the final form of government. Uh, I think some form of liberal democracy is the final form of government, and that you can't have a modern country without that. That is modern, successful modern people are not subject to hard tyranny. Maybe they're subject to soft tyranny, but that's uh, that's a quibble at this stage. Uh, but also, he he gets to it in a different way than I did. He's much more talking about the evolution of ideas and uh, broader historical forces. I'm focusing on what I think of as a kind of a mundane process of increasing productivity and societies uh, changing to become modern economies. And it isn't so much the economics of it as it is the sociology and politics of it, the changes that come in a people as as they become capable of operating the modern economy, competitive economy, successfully. Uh, But we come out in many ways to the same end.
1: You you mentioned tyranny, and in your chapter on freedom, you say that tyranny is not sustainable. Can you explain why it's not sustainable and and how we're going to get to the end of tyranny? Yes. In
0: uh, in the modern society, modern economy... Uh, it can only be successful if it has a large part of its population being creative, uh, independent, uh, well organized, uh, uh, good at evoking trust in other people, able to communicate effectively to a large number of people. Those are the, the qualities that are necessary for success almost at all levels of, of society. And that kind of person who works independently, thinks independently, and is able to organize, you can't tyrannize such a person, or you can't tyrannize a society composed of those kinds of people. So tyranny is just impractical in a modern society. If it started, the society would gradually run itself down, uh, and it would be very hard to start. Uh, So one of the firm predictions, relatively short-term predictions I make in the book, is that uh, China will not continue to have a creative growing economy and Communist Party control 30 years from now. Uh, the One of the, those two things are incompatible, uh, and uh, one or the other of
1: them will change.
0: And I will be proven wrong if that's not true.
1: Well, let's hope not. But you, 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 that is something I want to talk about a little, a little later in the interview. But you, you say in, in the uh, in, in the book, and again, re- re- relatively starkly in comparison to what you said, you, you know, this is one of your harder predictions, I guess, is that uh, China will be modern and democratic, be, be democratic before it becomes a threat to the United States. How can we be confident of that, or, or on what basis do you make that prediction? Uh okay the basis of which i just
0: described of how it's impossible for a fully modern society china is well on the way but but a large part of china is still uh, in rural areas uh, and not reached by the by the modern china that's why its income per capita is twenty uh, percent of the united states and while it is twenty percent it will be a a limited military threat, and when it gets to be 40 percent will have change, or 50 percent, uh, it will have changed enough so that it's not a political threat. Britain is not a threat to the United States. France is not a threat to the United States. Uh, Brazil is not a threat to the United States, and China will not be a threat to the United States or to uh, anyone else uh, when it changes its political regime.
1: Now, you're confident in saying China's not a threat, but when it comes to Islam, you're a little soft on it. In fact, you say, with respect to Islam, it's not impossible that someday they will reconcile democracy and Islam. It's sort of a, a weaker prediction in contrast to your, to your China prediction. Can you talk about the Islamic world and why it's harder to get this tra- transition from a traditional to a modern society in that world? Uh,
0: well... Islam is a very powerful religion it serves uh, uh, it is very influential and and helpful to uh, well over a billion people it has a strong history uh, history uh, of of appealing to people for a long time and of being very successful, having a high culture at the time uh, and Elements of that history uh, uh, include warlike ideas and warlike values uh, and also as a a society which is is, uh, not well off and which uh, feels very badly about its loss from being the main power in the world to being uh, secondary or or tertiary uh, so that a small minority within Islam, uh, part of it not so small, but certainly a minority believes, as the, many of the Islamic texts say, that Islam is slated to rule the world, and it's uh, evil if in, and against the wishes of, of Allah, of God, if Islam doesn't rule the world, uh, and therefore... Uh, They are resisting uh, what they consider infidel influence. And uh, the reason they're dangerous is they're not dangerous as nations. They could not have a a war as nations with uh, the United States or or the West. Uh, But they can do terrorism. uh, And to some extent, they can infiltrate with their ideas inside Western Europe, especially where... Uh, elements of Sharia, Islamic law, uh, are taking over, and, and Europeans are saying that it's not all right to criticize Islam. Uh, so there are are problems in in dealing with uh, this part of of, of Islam, uh, but I don't think that uh, Islam is going to be uh, Islamic countries are going to be willing to. Isolate themselves and stay uh, in traditional conditions when the rest of the world becomes modern.
1: Yeah, on this issue of uh, Islam in Europe, I'd say you're relatively optimistic on this one, more optimistic than other analysts like Bruce Bauer, Melanie Phillips, uh, Chris Caldwell, who were talking about the, the rise of Muslim majorities in Europe. And you, you you certainly don't see a Muslim majority emerging by 2030. And, and like Bruce Bauer has reported on sure that. Islamic cuffs are wearing in Europe They're saying 2030, that's when we take over. You say that won't happen until 2070 or 2080, if ever. Why are you more optimistic than some of these critics on what's going to happen in Europe?
0: Well, as far as population, it's just numbers. Uh, I don't understand where they get their numbers. Uh, uh, but numbers, the Muslim majority is not the only issue. In some ways, a bigger issue is uh, what they can do with the power of an active minority. Uh, and it's not that I disagree with the, the judgment about the present of somebody like Melanie Phillips and other people who have, have talked about the way in which uh, uh, radical Islam is has uh, increased its influence in the European countries. But I think when you look further down and try to ask where it can go uh, – uh, the chances are that it has uh, limited. There are limits to that process. I think that a lot depends on what happens internationally. Uh, I think that right now, uh, uh, radical Islam is more influential and powerful uh, within the Islamic world than it's likely to be for very long in the future. It's trying to take control of the whole world, and it will be its failure will become apparent. 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, I don't know. Uh, And that will uh, let moderate voices speak out within Islam. And uh, when the uh, Muslim world itself is uh, less engaged in challenging the West, then there will be less basis for Muslims in Europe and the United States to have that kind of uh, triumphalist attitude.
1: You know, in the recent Arab Spring, there was a sense that the reason for uprisings in Arab countries wasn't dislike of Israel, wasn't anti-Americanism, but a sense that economic growth was not something that can be shared widely throughout the society and that that they did not have the ability to participate. In this note, you have a great quote from Irving Kristol, one of my favorite writers in these areas, and it says, It was only the prospect of economic growth in which everyone prospered, if not equally or simultaneously, that gave modern democracies their legitimacy and durability, the sense that everybody had a a, a piece of the pie, even if they wouldn't all get the same amount at the same time. So um, can can you talk a little bit about that sense and how important that is to sustaining the transition from traditional to modernity?
0: People in, in each country have to, have to learn for themselves, although the people do look around the world and see what, what is happening in, in other countries. My sense is that the moving force uh, in, the Arab, in the crowds, uh, in Tunisia and Egypt especially, was people who wanted freedom and, and economic progress, uh, not people who wanted to combat the infidel world. Uh, they, I'm sure they were good Muslims and many of them may have been radical Muslims but that's not what those uh, demonstrations were about and what we're seeing now, especially in Egypt is conflict uh, within that community about which, which of the elements will come to power and it's not necessarily the element which represents the the, the most people uh, power depends upon organization and, and who has the arms and uh, how things work, not necessarily on what people want. I don't doubt at all that people want freedom. They want to be rich, too, and you have to know how to get each of those.
1: I want to end on a more optimistic note. You talk about Israel and its economic success, and, and your son has co-written the famous book, on Israel's economic success. And um, Israel, at the same time, has had to maintain a war footing throughout its existence and is also in a dangerous neighborhood surrounded by not only hostile, but also, as you would describe, traditional states. How has Israel managed to bring about this economic success at a time when it when it had to maintain the war system as well? Well, I think the heart of it is is freedom,
0: uh, uh, And in the modern economy in the world today, wealth comes from ideas, not from things. A small country like even Saudi Arabia can have wealth from oil, but that's not the way most wealth is created. Uh, And Israel has a free people with a tradition of of argument and not giving way to authority. Uh, And uh, the result has been very great productivity, uh, which has enabled it to become move into the uh, almost the top-ranked countries in the world, despite its small size and the fact that it's had to be defending itself this whole time.
1: Max Singer, you've been tremendously generous with your time. I'd like to close with what is our signature question here on New Books in Public Policy, which is what public policy ideas would you pursue? or recommend if you were, let's say, czar for a day, based on the ideas that you've developed in this book? Well, this isn't a book about current
0: policy. Uh, I think that uh, one of the perhaps destructive features of the current discussion is a sense, common sense, uh, that uh, things are getting worse uh, and that uh, modern society is a lot to answer for, Got a lot of unpleasant features, and uh, 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 there's no sense of, of direction. And what I'm doing by taking a a longer view, a little bit further back and a little bit further forward, is to give people a different perspective on on uh, on uh, whether we can be proud of what's been done and uh, have. Uh, a hopeful view about the future, and I think that affects the many people's uh, policy on lots of other things, even if it's not uh, directly expressed that way. The other thing I think is that this idea that the war system has to go away when uh, in regions which are composed of modern countries says that you don't have to have world government to make peace. And you don't have to have uh, giving up uh, sovereignty of democracies to international organizations to have peace. Uh, peace will come uh, as countries change in a way that they're all changing over the next few centuries. I'm not talking about this year or the next year or the next 20 years. I'm talking about a process that has taken a couple of centuries so far, will take another couple of centuries, In a lifetime, that's a long time, but in world history, it's not.
1: Well, Max, I must say that the only thing you've said that I disagree with is that this is not a public policy book, because I think it very much is a public policy book, and your ideas about the perspective that policymakers should adopt when looking at how to maintain our free, affluent, um, safe societies uh, are are essential to how public policymakers should approach things when, when they engage in making important decisions. I would also just like to say that I want to thank Herman Kahn for rescuing you from being a lawyer, and thank (laughs) you for joining us on new book from Public Policy today. Thank you for talking about public policy with me, Debbie. You've been listening to an interview with Max Singer, author of History of the Future. It's been a real honor for me to interview Max, who is one of the founders of Hudson Institute, an important public policy institution. And it also was a pleasure to read his book which looks at big issues in an optimistic way with clear and readable prose. And is really very worth reading and purchasing and talking about with your friends. So this is Tevi Troy, New Books in Public Policy, signing off and telling you until next week, keep reading.